Welcome, my friends, to this review of the people, process, and business domain. Before we get into the people domain, I have a few questions to ask you, and this is trivia. This obviously does not appear on the exam. How many tasks are there in the people domain for the PMP exam? The answer is 14 tasks. Next question. What percentage of the PMP exam is based on the people domain? The answer, 42% of the exam. That means going into the exam, you need to be all over the people domain. It's a huge part of your exam. Next question. When it comes to managing conflict, which conflict resolution strategy do we employ when faced with an emergency? The answer is force or direct. Final question. You're leading an individual on a team. You choose to use high supportive behavior and high directive behavior. Which of these are you using? A. Delegating. B. Supporting. C. Coaching. D. Directing. The answer is coaching. The coaching quadrant in the matrix shows high supportive behavior and high directive behavior. Let's get into our lesson for the people domain. That concludes our first part of trivia. Now, let's jump into the people domain. Hello and welcome to the PMP Exam Radio Show. It's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you've had a wonderful week. Well, it's Friday. Thank goodness. It's been a long week for some of us. For some of us who've been on international travel like myself, my goodness, what an ordeal. It's a project, a project and a half, just to get from here across the pond. But good news is I made it to Europe, and that's where I'm broadcasting from right now. I got a message from one of our listeners on YouTube, and the message was something to the effect of, I didn't do well on the exam in 2021. I didn't do well in the people domain. Now, for those of you who might think the exam does not have casualties, it does. And the PMP exam has casualties because a lot of well-meaning, hardworking students don't know what to expect. So today, I want to go through the entire PMP exam content outline. I want to give you a, let's call it a boost, right? I want to give you a booster shot of the PMP exam content outline so that you continually remember what to expect on the exam. I want to give you a set of principles, my principles that I share with students as they prepare for this exam. Remember, the exam is broken into people, process, and business. And Vicky shared that people was a tough part of her exam. So I want to jump straight into people. So here is the people domain. The first task is manage conflict. The philosophy is simple. Conflict should be managed by the people involved in it. 
and people who are involved in it, are, of course, are team members. So team members should be educated. They should be sensitized to the importance of conflict. There's good conflict, and good conflict is constructive conflict, which presents alternate ideas, alternate opinions. But it should be managed in a proactive fashion. First of all, by creating ground rules, sharing those ground rules, and the servant leader, whoever is a servant leader. With a team, it could be the scrum master or some other role.、It、could be anyone on the team. But the bottom line is getting to understanding, understanding the source and the stage of the conflict, analyzing the conflict, not taking sides, but encouraging the team to resolve conflict themselves. In cases where conflict cannot be resolved by the team, the scrum master may need to step in. And this is where we could evaluate, recommend, and reconcile the appropriate conflict resolution solution, whatever that looks like. But the bottom line is, conflict should be resolved accordingly. To do well in this task, you need to understand the Thomas Kilman Mode Instrument. I've talked about this previously, but if you go to the Pembroke Guide Sixth Edition, it's broken down pretty well. I like the way it's broken down in the Sixth Edition, without really calling it the Thomas Kilman Mode Instrument. But you've got the avoid. Got compromise, reconcile, smooth, accommodate—all of those. Know those really well, okay? That's task one. Task two is lead a team. The philosophy, the overarching principle is leadership is not a one-size-fits-all thing. You need to be aware of situational leadership. The Hersey-Blanchard model, which I may have mentioned before, be really solid on that, and the philosophies of that, and understand. The different definitions of leadership talked about in the sixth edition: transformational leadership, charismatic leadership, and so on. Also, understand in the Agile Practice Guide servant leadership in and out. Know the ten tenets of servant leadership. You can find this available. Robert Greenleaf started this movement, and he has a website, and you can get the tenets of servant leadership from there. Now, marry that back to the Agile Practice Guide and be really good on that. Next, support team performance. Support the team, give them power, give them the autonomy and support they need. Trust them to be able to self-lead and self-manage. Task four: empower team members and stakeholders. Again, empower them. Secure leaders give power to others, right? So, know their strength. Support the task accountability. Whatever task you've given to them. There's a difference between responsibility and accountability. We're talking about task accountability. In other words, not only are they responsible, they are accountable. Self-leading, self-managing. That whole mantra. Okay. Task five: ensure team members and stakeholders are adequately trained. It is your responsibility as a servant leader in whatever capacity you work to effectively. Train, mentor, coach people. Look for the opportunities for coaching. Make sure people get coached and trained. It's that simple. Now, on the exam, when you get questions, it will be dressed up with a situational type of language, but you need to be able to see through the language to see training as the best option. The best option is not going to hire a bunch of people, right, and get rid of the existing team. That's Not the best option. The best option is, as a servant leader, take responsibility, take ownership, get people training, get them coaching, get them mentoring. Task six: build a team. 
know what you're looking for. The biggest decision you can make is in the hiring process. So hire the right people, get them in, and continuously assess and refresh team skills. It goes back to what we we're just saying. Part of building a team is equipping a team. Task seven, address and remove impediments, obstacles, and blockers for the team. This is what seven leaders do. Now, what's the difference between an impediment and a risk? An impediment is happening right now. A risk is disaster waiting to happen or opportunity waiting to happen. So when we say impediment, we're talking about a blocker, an obstacle. We're not talking about positive risks here or negative risks. We're talking about something happening right now. So we want to find out what are the critical impediments. We want to prioritize them. We want to go after them. That's what the question is going to test you on. Do you know that it is your responsibility as a servant leader to remove impediments, obstacles, and blockers? Whether you call yourself a team lead, a project manager, scrum master, same thing. Task eight, negotiate project agreements. Analyze the bounds of the negotiation for agreement. Now, when we talk about negotiating project agreements, we're not just talking about money, monetary things. We could be talking about negotiating a user story, for example. You know, we talk about the INVEST acronym. We talk about the user story being independent of all others. And N in the INVEST acronym stands for negotiable. Well, we need to negotiate those things. So we're not just talking about money. We're not just talking about contracts. We're talking about negotiating user stories or even velocity. The company wants you to do 100 story points. And you know that from your burn up and burn down chart and from your records of how many story points you can do, this is unattainable. Well, negotiate it. Don't just say, oh, management says you do 100 story points, so I'm going to try to do it, burn the team out. No, no, no. Don't do that. You want to analyze the bounds of the negotiation. You want to assess priorities, verify the objectives, participate in the agreement negotiations. you got to negotiate. Trade-offs, right? You will be tested on trade-offs. You will be tested on understanding trade-offs and negotiation when it comes to resources, when it comes to team members, right, on the project. So keep that in mind. Task nine, collaborate with stakeholders. Collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Business people and developers, they should work together daily. Just remember that. Task 10, build shared understanding. I talk about the DIGCIV acronym, which you can find in 8.2 in the sixth edition. Define the problem, identify the root cause, generate alternatives, choose the best alternatives, implement that alternative, and verify the solution's effectiveness. But the bottom line is get on the same page, get on the same page, right? Break down the situation, survey the necessary parties, support the outcome. Of the parties involved. Your scrum master and the team decides to go in a particular direction, that's the direction to go, right? So you need to support that and then investigate any potential misunderstandings. Task 11 engage and support virtual teams. Virtual teams have been around for a long time, they've come to stay. This crazy pandemic is a reminder, but when it comes to virtual teams, understand the tools of the trade, understand what a virtual team is. But understand buzzwords such as fishbowl window or pair programming talked about in the Agile Practice Guide and things such as that or a remote pairing, uh, which is the right word. Task 12, define team ground rules. Understand page 50 in the Agile Practice Guide, the team charter, right? Understand 
other names for ground rules. We could say team charter, team agreement, social contract, team contract, that kind of thing. But understand pages 49, page 15, the Agile Practice Guide, and understand the output 9.1, where you get the team charter in the PMBOK Guide 6th edition. All of this is stuff that you should know for your exam. Task 13, mentor relevant stakeholders. Similar to what I said, if you find a gap in someone's understanding of a method, a framework, a principle, an idea, a project, a project task, a story, mentor them. Allocate time to mentoring. Recognize opportunities. It could be maybe something someone said and you realize, oh, that's an anti-pattern. They need to be mentored. They need to be educated. Task 14. Promote team performance through the application of EI. EI is big. There are definitions in both the Agile Practice Guide and the PMBOK Guide. Understand it's bridling your emotions and influencing the emotions of others. All right. And that is just the people domain that Vicky wrote in to say she had a rough time with on her last exam. Vicky, I wish you all the very best on your next attempt. In the next few episodes, we're going to be tackling the process and the business. But I hope this was a nice little boost for you, a little bit of encouragement to get you in ship shape for your exam. Thank you. You take care, everyone. Speak to you soon. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the process domain. Today, we are going to explore process. First question for you is, how many tasks are there in the process domain for the PMP exam? Of course, this doesn't appear on the exam, but it's trivia to get us started. The answer is 17 tasks. Next question. What percentage of the PMP exam is from the process domain? The answer is 50% of the exam. Next question. Name the three artifacts of Scrum. The answer, product backlog, sprint backlog, and the PSI, potentially shippable increment. Next question. Name three processes that are used in communications management. The answer, plan communications management, manage communications, monitor communications. Next question. Name the five strategies for positive risks or opportunities. One, escalate. Two, accept. Three, share. Four, enhance. And five, exploit. Next question. While using a power interest grid, you decide to put a stakeholder B into the top right quadrant. What strategy should you use for stakeholder B in the top right quadrant of the power interest grid? The answer is manage 
close. And that concludes our quick preamble into the process domain. Let's jump into it. And today we're going to be focusing on the process domain. Remember, it's a very quick boost, but I want to give you some insights into what to look out for and to get you to be more confident in your preparation. So taking a look at the PMP exam content outline, you know it's broken down into people, process, business. Just as a very quick reminder, we know that the people domain is 42%, the process domain is 50%, and business is 8%. So let's take a look at the process domain. Taking a look at the process domain, you can see that this is 50% of the exam. And the very first task is execute the project with urgency. The urgency required to deliver business value. When you're taking a look at task one in process, you almost immediately have to think in an agile fashion because agility is all about responding to what is needed as needed. So you've got to assess the opportunities And based on the opportunities you assess, you could choose to deliver incrementally. You could choose to deliver it one time if that is what is most appropriate. And you could choose to deliver it in frequent small increments or frequent smaller increments. What I mean by this is delivering, let's say, in smaller increments of a day or two days or delivering in small increments of a week or two weeks. You see, there's a difference. Even when you deliver, you could deliver in very tiny little pieces, like a stream of tiny little pieces, or you could deliver in small pieces, not tiny, but they're still small. You see what I mean? Now, this definition is encapsulated in the Agile Practice Guide. When you take a look at page 19, and page 18, right, and you read those definitions, there's actually a table in the Agile Practice Guide that breaks down iterative, predictive, incremental, and agile. The difference between how incremental and agile is described is in this frequent smaller deliveries versus frequent small deliveries. Incremental is all about get it out in increments smaller. When you take a look at Agile in context as needed, we use the term small, and they use that to distinguish between two. Now, someone might say it's a little bit finicky, but I quite like it because it calls your attention to the importance of incremental delivery, incremental value, okay? So task one is all about looking at your project and saying, should we deliver this using Agile, iterative, incremental, predictive? All right. And then it says, support the team to subdivide project tasks as necessary to find the MVP, the minimum viable product. Some products, you know they're viable right from the get-go. But in instances where you're not sure a product is viable, you need to have either a conversation, a prototype, some sort of tinier version of the whole to understand and get feedback to to know if that product is viable. Is it something that will fly in the market? Is it something that customers would want? Is it something that is a viable product to deliver value, to bring in 
be it revenues or benefits or satisfaction. And that is what MVP is all about. And there are many different terms to be aware of in Agile, but MVP is all about feedback. Minimum marketable product is what is the minimum amount of product we need to release that is marketable, that people will gravitate towards in the first instance. What's the minimum amount we put out? So the logic is don't wait till you've got every single release. Maybe you just release one part, one feature set, and that's a minimum marketable product, right? Or maybe you have to release four or five feature sets before it is looked at as a marketable product. And that would delay your entry into the market space. You see, there's a difference between MMP, is this marketable as a product, versus MVP, is this viable as a product? So when you understand a product is viable, what's the minimum amount to put out? And then we have another term, MMF, minimum marketable feature, which is the product is released. What is the minimum amount of features that we add as some sort of increment to release it to the marketplace? So all of these terms, they are important in really understanding task one. All right. Task one is probably the longest one. Let's go to task two, manage communications. For this, you need to be aware of how communications exists in the world of predictive. So we have planned communications, management, managed communications, monitor communications. You've got to know those pretty well, right? And then you need to understand how communication flows. Um, how does communication flow in an organization from portfolio down to program, down to project, to operations and back? You also need to understand in the world of Agile, how does communication flow? How does it exist? Basically, every ceremony in the world of Scrum is a communication vehicle, whether it's your sprint planning, your daily Scrum, the sprint itself, the retrospective, the sprint review, they're all vehicles for communications. The next one is assess and manage risks. The summary of this is know everything in risk management. Understand the nuts and bolts of plan risk management, identify risks, perform qualitative, perform quantitative risk analysis, plan risk responses, implement risk responses, and even monitor risk. Understand the nuts and bolts of those. And then in the world of agile, understand how risk is managed. Understand that when we look at product backlog items, for example, we should also look at them through a risk lens. Those that are risky, but high value, you want to do those first. Those that are not as risky and are high value, you want to think of doing those next. Those that are high risk and low value, you don't want to do those, do you? Because those might end up being less bang for the buck. So you want to do those that are low risk, low value before thinking about those that are high risk, low value, if that makes sense to you. So the way we look at risk, we look at risk as built into a lot of the framework, whether you're working with Kanban or you're working with Scrum or you're working with TDD or FDD. A lot of these have inherent mechanisms built in to either the ceremonies or the practices. The next one is engaged stakeholders. We talked about this a little bit earlier um, in the last episode. In this one, think about identify risks. Um, 
and think about how the stakeholders come into this process. Because as you identify and risk, what should you do? You should also bring stakeholders in. That's a way you can engage them. It's also where you should analyze their risk appetite, stakeholder risk appetite. So what we have listed in task four, it goes kind of beyond this. This is just an, a nice start. So you identify stakeholders, you analyze them, categorize them, um, engage them. But you also need to remember the pretty standard processes, identify stakeholders, plan stakeholder engagement, manage stakeholder engagement, and monitor stakeholder engagement. Task five, plan and manage budget and resources. This is really all about cost management. So you have plan cost management, estimate costs, determine budget, and control costs. And you need to be aware of all of those. Um, those formulas for earned value, be really well aware of them. All right, next one here, manage plan and manage schedule. So plan and manage schedule, again, you have six processes in schedule management. You've got to know them all. You've got to know what you get from them all. You've got to know how you deal with them all. So when you take a look at plan and manage schedule from an agile lens, it's important to see this as built into the process. We in the world of Agile, we talk about roadmaps. We talk about the, the Agile onion where we plan at different levels. But when it comes to scheduling, planning at the roadmap level is something that pretty much cuts across the entire endeavor. But coming down to the product backlog and the sprint backlog, when we talk about the sprint backlog, that's when you need to begin thinking about um, the aspect of tasks. So the summary is when you take a look at schedule management from the perspective of Agile, it's when you get to the sprint backlog that you really begin thinking about tasks um, and not every team goes down to that level. But in the PMBOK Guide 6th edition, it shows you how the roadmap is broken down. So you think about the higher level uh, release, then you, you, know, you think about the um, iterations within the release, you think about the features within the iteration, you think about the story. So, so how all that comes together is very important as well. Moving on to plan and manage quality of products and deliverables, I want to encourage you to look into the annexes in the Agile Practice Guide where you have the breakdown of the Agile Manifesto values and principles and how those map to specific practices and aspects in the world of Agile. Uh, that is talked about quite a bit in the two images, two tables uh, in the annex that I would highly advise you look at in the Agile Practice Guide, where it shows the uh, values and how those map to practices. And in fact, let me show that to you really quick. So for those of you who are able to watch the video via YouTube, um, just take a look right there on the screen. You can see this is Annex um, A2, table A2-1 on page 98. And the same thing on page 98, you have the, again, manifesto information. Uh, the principles on the left, 
and the section in the uh, actual Agile practice guide. You see that? So it shows you how the principles map to certain practices. I would highly recommend that. It will help you in the long run. All right, let's move back into the next task. Scope management, all I'll say at a high level is understand how scope is managed uh, across those six processes of scope. Integration, again, this is really code for integration management with respect to planning. Number 10, manage project changes. Highly recommend knowing the flow for change requests. I have a video for this out on YouTube. If you Google change management, Prazion within YouTube, you should find those videos. If I'm able to, I will put a link uh, under this media so that you can find these things I'm talking about. Plan and manage procurement. Again, there's a video out there. If I'm able to, I will put the link below. But for the exam, definitely understand agile contracts, flexible contract arrangements, and how those work. Manage project artifacts. Know the three artifacts, for example, of Scrum, those artifacts that are peculiar to Scrum and those that are more peculiar to predictive. Uh, really understand page 89. Know what those artifacts are and what they do for you. Task 13, determine appropriate project methodology. Again, boils down to page 18 and 19 in the Agile Practice Guide. Knowing when a project should be agile, predictive, iterative, incremental is important. Task 14, establish project governance structure. Understanding that governance is a framework within which authorities are exercised and understanding the types of governance. Project governance is really what we should be thinking of more as project managers understanding escalation paths and thresholds. Number 15, managing project issues. Again, the DIG CIV approach, defining the problem, identifying the root cause, generating alternatives, choosing the best alternative, implementing the alternative and verifying solution effectiveness. All of this is talked about in 8.2 in manage quality under problem solving the tool and technique. I just call it the DIG CIV approach, DIGSIV approach. I also have a podcast uh, episode on the DIGCIV approach. Look for it. Task 16, ensure knowledge transfer for project continuity. is all about knowing and understanding the vehicles for knowledge transfer, the managed project knowledge process, understanding how knowledge is transferred across a project, understanding the usefulness of retrospectives, when the team comes together to share lessons learned and things like that. But of course, you do know that the way we look at this in Agile is different from predictive. In Agile, we don't necessarily document all of this information and share it far and wide. It's internal, close-knit to the team. We keep it close to the vest. Uh, We're not airing dirty laundry or putting stuff in documents. It works differently. But the bottom line is discuss the project, um, understand expectations, uh, confirm the approach for knowledge transfers, and just copiously share knowledge. You know, you've got um, not only retrospectives, but you also have sprint reviews where you can share knowledge, customer to team. You can also share knowledge across the daily scrums, things like that. Last but not least, we have plan and manage project or phase closure and transitions. And this is all about managing the closure, close project or phase, understanding final product service or result transitions, the final report, 
uh, understanding uh, regression analysis and things like that. Regression analysis helps you understand why you got the results you got. And of course, uh, retrospectives, closing out, you know, with a knowledge and uh, retrospective uh, ceremony, it is just going to help any team um, better close out and move to the next thing, right? The thing about Agile is at any point in time, we are ready to close because we don't do it one time. We do it incrementally. We do it iteratively um, over the period of the project, over the period of the stream of value we're releasing. We're always going back to make sure that we are indeed ready to close out that chapter. Anyway, that's that. I hope this helps you. I know it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but there's so much stuff to cover. It cannot all be done in just a few minutes. If you feel you need more training or coaching, go on down to the Praiseon website, P-R-A-I-Z-I-O-N.com. Sign up for our course, PMP Exam Prep Camp, or any of the other vehicles that you find on our website. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Bye for now. Welcome back to the last section where we talk about the business domain. And the question is, how many tasks are there in the business domain for the PMP exam? The answer, four tasks. Final question, what percentage does the business domain cover on the PMP exam? The answer is 8%. Let's jump straight into it. This is going to be the longest of all the sections because there's very little information to go off on in the PMBOK guide or the Agile Practice Guide when it comes to the business domain. So we need to blow this out quite a lot. Let's go. We are going to take a look at the PMP exam content outline from an Agile and hybrid lens. It's one thing to read the content outline just thinking about the 49 processes, but I always want you to go a step further and to read the content outline and think about the agile and hybrid perspective. All right, so in the PMP exam content outline, we have people, process, business. The previous episodes, we covered people and we covered process. Today, we are covering business. So... Let's get down to business. Open up the PMP exam content outline, and why don't you follow me to page 10? It's the business environment. The business environment is all about business-related ideas and how those relate to projects. Let's go over this really quick, because there are only four. But the thought and the thinking for this needs to be organizational level, program level, portfolio level, external environment level, and how that affects your projects, your organization, programs, portfolios, that big think. And that's why the PMI have made this 8% because they know that in the publications they have, they actually didn't do a splendid job of documenting this clearly. And that's why those of you who are reading for the exam, you find yourself asking the question, where can I find this? Where can I find that? 
And the answer, you don't get. What you hear is crickets. <laughs> because it's hard to find this content. But I'll break it down for you. So let's go straight to the first task. It reads, plan and manage project compliance. So when you talk about compliance to begin with, how can we define it? Think about compliance like this. Compliance means adhering to a regulation, a law, a rule, a policy, a standard, a specification. And when we talk about this in business, compliance is linked to corporate governance. What is governance? Governance is the framework within which authority is exercised. It's the framework in which rules, regulations, and practices are upheld in the firm. So it's very firm level driven. Going a step further into the content outline, still in task one, it reads, plan and manage project compliance. First enabler, confirm project compliance requirements. So we're talking about requirements for security. This could be physical security, it could be data security, could be health and safety, could be regulatory compliance. So all those compliance requirements need to be identified. And guess what? In the world of predictive, we often say the project manager should identify these and they have the accountability and the responsibility for this. But you know the truth? From a hybrid and agile perspective, we need to adopt a decentralized responsibility, accountability mindset. See, that's how it works in the world of agile. So it's not just one person's responsibility. In the world of agile, it's everyone's responsibility. Are there some individuals that may have an advantage of knowing more about these compliance clauses? Of course, but it's everyone's accountability and responsibility at the team level when we talk about this from an agile perspective. We also have an enabler that says classify compliance categories. And then we have one that states determine potential threats to compliance. So think about it. Why would you classify compliance categories? Well, experience has shown that if you have categories for these compliance clauses and variables, it is easier for you to identify them, easier for you to take an account of each one. So classify the categories and determine threats to compliance. In other words, what are the risks that you would be out of compliance? And also, be honest. Does it make more sense to perhaps not be in compliance? Taking a look at a risk perspective and a risk response perspective, you know, one of the PMI principles, they say optimize risk responses, choose the adequate risk response. Well, some organizations choose to not be in compliance. I'll give you a simple example. I was watching a soccer player today do this big old celebration and ripped off his shirt and he knew he was going to be carded. He was not in compliance, but he decided to take the risk of being out of compliance to celebrate the goal. Now, sometimes in business, you choose to not be in compliance because the cost of being in compliance is too much. You'd rather pay the penalty 
than go through all these hoops and jumps and paperwork. You see, so that's another mindset that you can think about. When does it make sense to maybe not be in compliance? Okay, now this is all businessy stuff, and that's why it sounds kind of weird. Determine potential threats to compliance, and then use methods to support compliance. Be intentional about your compliance, and then determine the necessary approach and action to address compliance needs. Think about how you need to act, steps you need to take, check boxes you need to tick to address compliance needs from all perspectives, be it. Health, safety, risk, legal, and so on. And the last enabler simply reads: measure the extent to which the project is in compliance. So, take stock of your levels of compliance all throughout. Don't wait till you are audited by an external auditor for SOX compliance or OSHA regulations and how well you're meeting those, or the. Americans with Disability Act, or something to that effect. These are all regulatory law standards that we encounter in the world of business. Security standards and so on. Okay, so that is the first task. Now, to round up this first task, how do you tackle these things? From a pragmatic project perspective, who is doing this? Is this part of the project? You bet, it is part of the project, and that's why the mindset needs to be identify what needs to be done, and then make this part of your project tasks, part of what has to be done on the project at some time by the team, by someone. In some capacity or the other, and as a whole, in the world of agile, when we think about compliance, many a time these compliance activities they get put into the backlog because they are part of what we genuinely look at as requirements. You know, there's a difference between a user story that is a nice to have, that's a request, versus a compliance item. And those compliance items, if they're part of what you're coding or what you're developing, whether in the world of IT or in the world of engineering or in the world of services, you want to make sure those compliance aspects are in there. Whether it's food service, you're dealing with the FDA, you better make sure you get all your ducks in a row. You get what I'm saying? That's the mindset. It could be anything. I know a lot of times when we look at agile and hybrid stuff. There's a tendency to want to think IT, but no, no, no. Don't just think IT. Think wider than IT. Think gaming. Think medical industry.、Um, think、um, food, FDA stuff like that. All right, let's move on to task two. Task two is evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. The summary is this: when you are taking on a project, always ask the question. What is the benefit? What is the definite chief aim? Why are we doing this? What value are we looking to give to the customer? So we want to investigate first of all that benefits are identified 
not that benefits are realized, but that you identify them. There's a very robust section in the Pembroke Guide Sixth Edition on page 33 forward that talks about benefits, and there's a brilliant page seven in the Sixth Edition that really gives you examples of tangible benefits, intangible benefits. Highly advise you to go read that up so that you understand what we mean by benefits. And what we mean by value, because it says evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. So value, when we say something has value, we're talking about the net quantifiable benefits that a customer or stakeholder realizes. If the customer is getting benefits, they are getting value because value is the net quantifiable benefits that a customer realizes. So you want to identify that these benefits are identified right, first of all, and then document agreement on ownership for ongoing benefit realization. In other words, who's going to own these benefits? Who's the benefits owner? This is all talked about in the Pembroke Guide 6th edition, page 33. The benefits management plan is really the document they're alluding to. Some people just call it a benefits plan. But that's where you begin the journey. Identify the benefits, know who the benefits owner is, get specific, right? Get quantitative, get qualitative, get specific. Number three says verify a measurement system is in place to track benefits. In other words, make sure you know what you're measuring. Are you measuring ROI? Are you measuring MPV? What exactly are you measuring? The fourth one is evaluate delivery options to demonstrate value. Ask the question, how are we going to deliver? Are we going to deliver incrementally? Are we going to do it a one-time thing? Pretty much, is this incremental? Or is this iterative? Or is it predictive? There are many questions you can ask. But you're either delivering one time or you're delivering multiple times. Some projects you absolutely can do that and other projects you can't. But some projects where you can't deliver multiple times, you can think about an incremental validation of the sub-deliverables, even though you can't deliver a sub-deliverable on some projects all on their own. They just won't work. There's no point. But you can have those incremental milestones. And you know what value you're getting? You're getting value from customer feedback. In the world of Agile, we call this MVP, the minimum viable product. What is the minimum amount of product you need to show a customer or what is the minimum thing you need to do MVP doesn't have to be a product as I've said many a time could actually be a discussion but the thing about MVP you want to get feedback to make sure you're building the right stuff and once you know what to build then you know how to deliver it as you think more critically and introspectively so evaluate the delivery options to demonstrate value when you know that this is definitely going to deliver value. Ask, okay, how should we deliver it? Frequent, smaller increments? Maybe larger chunks? Maybe a one-time thing? All right. Final one here for task two is appraise stakeholders of value gain progress. In other words, let your stakeholders know the value that has been delivered over successive time periods. For some projects, there's no value until you're done. Other projects, you begin realizing value along the way. And some projects, you deliver a product and it takes another six months, one year before you realize any value from it. But it's good to know what you're dealing with. Let's go to task three. 
evaluate and address external business environment changes for impact on scope. Think about that. External business environment changes. Let's talk about the crazy pandemic. When COVID hit, a lot of organizations had to do just that. They had to evaluate and address the business environment changes because no longer could their teams go into work. No longer could they sustain work in person. It had to be done by small teams coming on different shifts. It had to be done for some companies like training companies. They had to change how they were doing stuff. And this is all they're saying in task three. Constantly, as a good project manager, evaluate external business environment changes for the impact on scope. If the scope needs to change, change it. So you were thinking of building this big old 10-story structure to house your team, and then COVID hit. And you got 1,000 workers who don't need to be in the office, but you were about to fork out $50 million on a new building, and it's going to two years, and you see what I'm saying? This is when we need to think in an agile fashion, because maybe that's not the best use of your resources at this time. You see, so evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. And then when you know what value you're thinking about, constantly evaluate and address external business environment changes for impact on scope, because you may not be able to realize that value, those benefits of housing your team in this new structure, because the environment has changed. And that's a pretty drastic example. But on every project, they are examples of how the external environment could affect the project scope. So the idea is this, if you've thought about this from an agile perspective, as you prepared for the exam, you might have thought about backlog refinement. Well, that's part of it. Backlog refinement is when the product owner is constantly, not only in a backlog refinement ceremony, but it's constantly looking at the environment and asking the question, what has changed? How should I reprioritize with the team this product backlog? What needs to go? What can stay? Perhaps we can cut off 50% of those product backlog items. We don't need them anymore. That's the way you need to be thinking. Being agile. All right, so assess and prioritize the impact on project scope, backlog based on changes in the external business environment, and then recommend options for scope or backlog changes, pretty much what I said, based on the business environment, you may need to make changes to the product backlog, schedule changes, cost changes, and then continually review external business environment for impacts on project scope, the backlog. It's a constant thing. Constantly ask, what is changing? New technology has arrived. Oh, well, we know that our customers aren't going to want what we're building because there's a new technology. You know, case in point, when 3D printing came on the scene, there were a lot of companies that realized they couldn't keep doing what they were doing at the rate they were doing. A lot of the projects had to change. They had to realize that it was a cheaper, more efficient way of doing things. 3D printing. Just as an example, let's go to number four. Number four is support organizational change. And that's big. We're not talking about project change or program change or portfolio change. No, this is far-reaching, higher-level change, organizational change. 
And the first enabler is assess organizational culture. Why? Because based on culture, you know how people will react to change. You know how people will be when you announce a change is coming. Some firms are just change averse. Some firms they're deeply rooted in tradition, and they just find a hard time changing to anything. So assess your organizational culture and understand how best to deliver your project outcomes and outputs, so that it will be taken in a productive manner. Some projects try to do too much too soon; they haven't assessed the organization's culture. And they are harming the organization by doing too much too quick. You know, in the Pembroke Guide Seventh Edition, it reads something to the effect of people having change fatigue because you're trying to do too much change too quick. Don't do it. It's pretty much what PMI is saying. The Pembroke Guide Seventh Edition actually takes change to a pretty high level, and I'm not talking about summary level. No, I'm, I mean they really went pedal to metal. In talking about various change models, we talk about the William Bridges transition model. We talk about the ADCAR model. We talk about the John Carter's model, and others, including PMI's FIPIMS,、um, FPIMS、uh, model. I call it the FIPIMS model. But there's a lot of talk about that. I'm not telling you this because I'm saying these models are going to appear on the exam. No, I'm trying to sensitize you to how vast organizational change is. The ADCAR model is a brilliant addition, and it sensitizes you to what people go through and how you should respond as a professional. And the William Bridges transition model—it just helps you see how people go through peaks and valleys of emotions, some pretty rough emotions, and. When you understand what people are going through, as you try to introduce change, that should prompt you to have sense-making sessions, to be empathetic towards people as they go through change in an organization. So the final task in business is all about supporting organizational change, assess the organization's culture, evaluate the impact. Of the organizational change to your project, and determine required actions. So, how does change happening in the firm as a whole affect my project? And the last enabler is another question: How does my project impact the organization? In other words, evaluate the impact of your project to your organization and determine required actions. What needs to be done? What needs to be done to make sure that this change is absorbed the best way possible, is conveyed the best way possible? These are the ideas behind this one, you know. And we could go into things like empathy and sense-making sessions and bringing the organization along, doing all the right people stuff. And trust me, you will be tested. On change management at the project level and at the organizational level, on your exam, you can expect those. So when we talk about change in process, it's different. 
right? We've gone over that before. Uh, talking about change on the process level, it's all about you know artifacts and deliverables and process and stuff. But task four in the business environment is at a higher level. It's organizational change, and you want to be proficient with that thinking, and you should know what to expect. In other words, it's all in the outline. Read it. Okay, my friend. So we're done talking about the business environment. We've talked about plan and manage project compliance. We've talked about evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. Evaluate and address external business environment changes for impact on scope and support organizational change. And I know I went through it really quick. We actually could break this down for the next four hours. All right. So I still want you to go read up some of this stuff that I mentioned. Go read up page thirty-three and. Uh, the sixth edition. Look at page seven. Um, open up your agile practice guide. Just mine for some information regarding uh, this along these lines, and put on your organizational change thinking cap when you get into the exam. All right. I hope this has been of help to you. Don't forget to hit like if you can. If you're watching this on YouTube, share with your friends. Please subscribe. Please, if you're enjoying it, I want you to give it a thumbs up. I want you to give it a rave review. And I wish you all the very best on your exam. You take care and I will speak to you again very soon. Bye for now.